Louis Giglio is an American pastor who some of us have heard preach, uh, maybe live or heard a sermon online or watched a video because he's been around for about 25 years impacting the world in, in like a global ministry. Um, he speaks in a recent book about being very frustrated at a time in his life some years ago when he was planting a church in Atlanta City. And he said, I was, I was frustrated with this issue that had come up, and so I wanted to vent a bit. I wanted to share some of my thoughts with a friend. So he took his phone out and he wrote quite a long text, and he sent it off to the friend. Again, it was sort of venting. And you're expecting a bit of a long text back to, to have that person show empathy. And he got this very small text back. It was nine words. He thought, oh, nine words. I thought I'd get more than that. I'm looking for empathy, uh, someone to vent with me. And the, the nine words that came back were, Louis, don't give the devil a seat at your table. Don't give the devil a seat at your table. Sin is a problem for us as human beings. And this morning we're going to unpack sin a little today from the book of Deuteronomy and also the New Testament. Sin can get a hold of our lives before we're a Christian and after, yes? It's an issue that we struggle with and often the, the tangling influence of sin begins with this issue of letting the devil have a seat at the table of our hearts, the table that's been prepared by the Lord for us to commune with him at. It's the spiritual picture we take from Psalm 23. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then a little later on, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The great desire of our God is to commune with his people. Amen. And so we have this picture it's a metaphor given to us by the Lord in Psalm 23 that he's actually prepared a table for this communion to happen at. And it's not a serenely designed table that's apart from all of our troubles. It's a table set for us to commune with him in the presence of our enemies, of the challenges of life, of the stressors. But it's a table nonetheless, the Lord and us. It's relationship. But often, there's an unwelcome guest at the table. A bit too close to the centre of us. A bit too close to the thoughts of our mind and the, the, um, the, the ruminating um, thoughts of our heart. There's someone else there. But a little bit more on that later, and it's the evil one. Today's message is about dealing with sin. For wholehearted devotion. That's what we're called to. Wholehearted devotion. Certainly what Israel were called to. It's what Deuteronomy deals with. Um, and we have to grapple with sin to become wholehearted. Uh, as we've discovered from reading Deuteronomy, it's a book which shoots pretty straight. Would you agree? Sort of from the hip. Boom. And so when Moses gets to deal with those who are caught sinning in the camp, it's maybe not a complete surprise that the treatment for the sinner is rather brutal. But still, I think for any of us, it's still a shock. It, we find it shocking. Because we're not talking in this passage we're looking at today, in chapter 13, 
we're not talking about God's judgment on the unholy nations of the promised land. We're not talking about those seven nations that he wants to um, exterminate from the land. We're talking about the people of God. So let me read um, from chapter 13, verse 1. Moses says, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. And then in verse 5, That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, uh, from what he commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. It's a line that we've heard many times in Deuteronomy. Purge the evil from among you. And then again, I want to read in uh, chapter 17. So a few chapters down the track. Chapter 17, verse 2. If a man or woman lying among you, living among you, in one of the towns the Lord gives you, is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God, in violation of his covenant... And contrary to my command, has worshipped other gods bowing down to them or to the sun or the moon or the stars in the sky. And this has been brought to your attention. Then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of one, only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. Pretty barbaric time, isn't it? I mean, it's shocking. Purge the evil from among you. God, in the same way that he wanted to protect his people from the idol-worshipping seven nations that were marked to be destroyed here, applies the same rules to those who desire to spread idol worship among the camp. Zero tolerance. Purge the evil from among you. Now, we've dealt a little bit with holy war. It's something that I don't think any of us completely understand. It's a really difficult issue. God announcing judgment on whole groups, thousands of people, and it's sort of done with swords and stones. It, it, it sounds quite brutal. Violence in the Old Testament um, is just a challenge, would you agree? For us to understand. And some of that is that we're so inoculated from death we don't realise that when some of us eat meat, and when you eat meat, an animal has given its life in sacrifice for us to eat. So life and death, when we go to the fridge at the supermarket and bring that home and put it in our fridge and eat the chicken later on, um, it's disconnected from life and death. Nonetheless, uh, it is still shocking to us. Uh, and what is clear from today's text is that Yahweh teaches the people to take sin very seriously. Would you agree? You couldn't, you couldn't read this and not get that feeling that you take 
truth and wisdom from the Old Testament way back in Deuteronomy. In fact, you see it consistently throughout the Old Testament. And you try to bring it through the new to the 21st century and try to ask the question, what does this mean for us? Some things, they're put in context, but what does it mean for us? And the answer has got to be, God takes sin seriously, and so should we. In the Old Testament, I'll have some graphics on the, on the board here to help us. In the Old Testament, Israel were God's people called to represent God. And so they had a job to do in a covenant relationship with Yahweh to show people what Yahweh required of humanity. Now, Israel, speaking broadly, were not that successful in representing God until one Israelite came along, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was faithful Israel. And we know that he was fulfilling everything Israel were meant to do from the Gospels. You read Matthew's Gospel, it's very clear, it's not just an accident that Jesus went to Egypt because the Scripture says, I've called my son out of Egypt. And the people were brought out of Egypt. So he comes and he fulfills all the callings of Israel, uh, many of which they failed in the midst of, but he does not fail. He's perfect. So uh, he's baptized in the Jordan as the people were baptized going through the Red Sea, tempted in the wilderness 40 days, representing the 40 years of uh, wilderness wanderings. He's anointed by the Spirit as the prophets of old were. He did signs and wonders like Elijah and Elisha and other prophets. He gave the new law in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, just like Moses gave the law back in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Jesus is faithful Israel. He lived a perfect life without sin in our place so that he could deal with sin once and for all. And so we have the picture of the cross. So Israel were God's representative and then the ultimate representative came and he was perfectly obedient and he did what the suffering servant was always meant to do. He laid his life down for the lost. And that's why we could have Pentecost because Jesus died and rose again and then he had promised that he would send his spirit, the spirit of God, to inhabit the hearts of every believer. And so that was the birth of the church. We were on board with all this. So we have Israel. They have a calling to be God's people. It was perfected in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And through the Spirit of God, the church was born and we were given this amazing uh, mandate to continue to represent Jesus, to be God's people, his chosen people. And so we take this good news to all the world. And then what will still happen is Jesus will return. The dead and the living will be resurrected to the final judgment. And those found in Christ will return to live forever on the new earth, joined with heaven in new creation. And those who choose to pay for their sin themselves will receive the judgment of damnation. That's, I guess, a mud map, isn't it? a mud map of salvation history. And so when you see it laid out like that, you can see that there is a connection between Israel and us. Throughout history, sin has been a problem, a problem. Genesis 3, Jesus, God says, don't eat the fruit of that tree. They do. They don't die immediately, but there's a breaking spiritually of their relationship and then they do die in fact if you read the first chapters of genesis everyone dies and then they died and then they died sin causes death it's what we read about in romans 323 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the consequence? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So sin is a really big problem, whichever side of the hourglass you live. Yet it has been decisively dealt with, the consequence of sin, because Jesus died and his blood forgives those who put their faith in the grace of God backwards in time and forwards in time. Amen? So we're just doing a, an, an overview here. Um, in Deuteronomy, the people are told as God's representatives to get rid of sin, zero tolerance. Can you see that the same commands, God's people, same Holy Spirit, same truth, same commands are actually given to the church. Let me read it to you. Colossians 3. Paul writes to the church at Colossae and says in verse 5, Put to death. It's similar language, isn't it? To Deuteronomy. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. It's interesting, isn't it? In Deuteronomy, they are literally to put to death the person in the camp, the body. They are put to death that person who has sinned through disobedience because Israel are God's representatives. In the New Testament, we are to spiritually put to death the sin which leads to dis disobedience because we are God's representative. Can you see? It's the same calling. It's the same calling, but clearly it is the matters of the heart that were always the issue. It was always about the heart. Now... We live in a time in the New Testament where we still have to put sin to death. Of course, we don't go around killing people, but there is this idea of putting to death sin. Same Holy Spirit says to us, don't play with that sin. Zero tolerance. Are you feeling it? You feel it. If you make the connection, but in the hourglass, it's like, right. And sin here is not just lust. You know, sometimes um, you get the idea that the main thing God really cares about is the temptation and giving into temptation to do with lust and sexual sins, because that's the dirty stuff. Of course, that's wrong outside of marriage and even in marriage if it's formed out of lust. But Colossians is very clear, as it is all over the New Testament, that sin includes greed, right? Idolatry. Malice, slander, gossip, anger, rage, filthy language, lying. Put all these things to death, as brutally as Deuteronomy suggests. Don't give sin a seat at the table of your heart. Zero tolerance. So how do we do this in the modern world post the cross and the resurrection? Well, Paul says in Romans 8, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If we are going to put to death sin, everyday sins. Now, it's an awkward thing, isn't it? Because Jesus has paid decisively for our sins. Hallelujah. 
He's paid for our sins. Yet the New Testament talks about us dealing with sin. It's still there. The penalty can be paid for. But for us to appropriate the, the power of righteousness, we need to put daily, we put sin to death. Amen. Um, it is a challenge to get your head around, whether you're a new Christian or an older Christian. I thought Jesus paid for sin. Why do we still have sin? Well, there's a now and not yet. Um, the penalty has been paid once and for all, but there's a process by which we learn to live in the victory. If we are going to put individual sins to death, as Colossians tells us to, it is going to be by the Spirit that it happens. That's what the Bible says. Listen to this again, Romans 8. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. How do you put to death sin? Isn't it clear? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. That's how it's done. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, there's a chance we wouldn't have the Spirit otherwise. But by the Spirit, because of the cross and the resurrection, we can put the misdeeds of the body to death. And of course, this is exactly what Ephesians 6.17 talks about in spiritual warfare. Verse 17 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We fight sin with the sword of the Spirit. We fight sin, put it to death, with the Spirit's power. Galatians 3.5, and this I guess is the key, if you're struggling to follow. Galatians 3.5 says, Again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by your believing what you heard? It's by believing what you heard. So how do we access the power of the Spirit? We listen to the Word of God and believe it. Amen? That's how the Spirit empowers us to live as Christians. So if, if you're not reading this, you are going to struggle to put to death the sin. Because it's the Word of God that speaks to us that which is true. And in this amazing Christian idea, the kingdom worldview is by faith... We take truth in and let it find a home in our heart and our mind. And in doing that, power comes as the fruit. This is why Jesus was blown away by faith, the centurion's faith. We're told that you can't please God without faith. It is hearing the word and believing it that makes manifest the life of the spirit if we are Christians already saved by faith in what Christ has done. Hear with me. So, what does this mean? So imagine the sin that needs to be put to death in your life is the sin of greed and the love of money. You, you maybe come from a background that uh, money was scarce and you made an inner vow, I'll never not have money. And maybe you were taught that by your parents. But a, an appreciation of money can live very close to a love of money. And next to a love of money, there's the sin of greed. So what are we going to do? Because this might be you today. You struggle with and you need to put to death greed and the love of money. Well, what the answer is we need to find out what does the Bible say that would counter that, that I could believe that would enable the Spirit to give me the strength to put that to death. What does the Bible say about that, about that sin? Well, Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, 
Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said. So we're told, don't love money. Don't love greed. But what do I do, Lord? Well, believe this. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now you can hear that, but not believe it. Amen. But the power of the Spirit is made manifest in our lives to, over time, put to death the sin of greed. When we hear that and we believe it. When we hear it and we go, you know what? There is a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth of every mind. And I am belonging to Him. And He says He's never going to leave me. He's going to look after me. No matter what other people tell me around about. Now, it doesn't mean we're silly with our money. But that is the core of defeating the sin of greed. I have a Father in heaven who knows my needs and he says he will look after me. Amen? We can trust in something greater than money and greed. The Israelites were to take the sinner outside the gate and stone them to death. Stone them to death. I think one of our problems in, in, in the modern day world is that we see this stuff about sin in the Old Testament and, and we have something in our mind that says, you know what, context is everything. Uh, clearly we're not meant to do that. So I'm not going to worry too much about these little sins. They're only little things. They don't matter that much. And how do you know anyway? The Bible's very hard to interpret. You can believe it to tell you anything you want. And often it's weaponized. It's weaponized against certain people. But then the end result of that is often sin is meh, whatever. But it's just not how the Bible treats sin. Amen? So we have this work to be done about considering what is it that I am struggling with, Lord? How do I put that to death by your grace? The problem of humanity is we are trespassers. We're trespassers. God said to Adam and Eve, look, there's a, basically a line with red and white tape or blue and white tape. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can um, eat from other trees. But if you went in there, you would go into morally forbidden ground. You would trespass on a, a space that you're not allowed. What did they do? They were trespassers. <laughs> they went, oh, we're going to hang out here. Well, look at that tree. And God says, don't go near that. You would be trespassing. That's not for you. But they trespassed. And that's obviously the old English word, isn't it? Forgive us our trespasses. It's actually really powerful when you think, what is a trespass? It's going morally to where you're not allowed. It's standing on prohibited ground. And if we in the modern church don't consider sin seriously, it's like there, there is no forbidden ground. We can go anywhere, and that's so profoundly dangerous. The challenge with sin is that it's not just the lure of um, our own flesh. Have you found that? That in the same way that they didn't just, Adam and Eve didn't just go, oh, I wonder, I wonder if it is. Worth having a look at that. There was a snake, the evil one, the accuser, who actually got in their ear. Or maybe had gone into the trespassed area, the pro pro prohibitive area, and used a hook and fished for them. Right? 
and lured them in to the forbidden space. Have you noticed that Satan, who likes to lure us towards sin, if he's a fisherman or a fisherwoman, he does it sneakily, not loudly. Anyone notice that? So Satan, is, if he's fishing for fish in pit water, he goes out in his boat. He doesn't do this. Imagine he did. Imagine his uh, lure to us to sin would be, he's in the boat and he's just gone over to this nice little spot he expects to catch some fish and uh, he pulls out his megaphone. Excuse me, fish. Attention, all fish. <clears throat> I am now going to throw you a very sharp hook. It'll have some food on it, but it's mainly it's a hook. It's got a massive barb on it. Come and bite it. When you do, I'm going to yank the line really hard. Then I'm going to pull you in to my boat against your will. I'm going to put you in an esky, take you ashore. I will then take all your scales off, cut you open, take your guts out. Then I'm going to soak you in butter and cook you on the barbie and eat you. And then I'm going to go back and get your family and friends. I'm going to do the same thing. He doesn't do that, does he? But what he does do is he, he, he goes to an area and he matches the hatch of what you eat. He says, I don't want them to know there's a hook in this. So what are they eating down there? Well, I could make a lure that looks like that. It's a fake. That's what he does, isn't it? It's a counterfeit for what God provides, because God provides the fish what to eat. But he says, oh, it's pretty close. It's close enough. It's enough to mesmerize and dazzle. A lot of lures are shiny or different colors. His plan is to catch people without them knowing. So back to Romans 8. It says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We would be wrong in somehow getting caught up in, oh, how do I deal with sin? How do I deal with sin? That's not who we are as a church. We believe Christ on that cross 2,000 years ago. He paid for sin. It's not your willpower or mind that will deal with sin. It has been dealt with. We are called saints, not sinners. Those of us who put faith in Christ. There's this wonderful victory that has been announced. So let's live in it. Let's live in it. That's what this issue is all about. The Spirit's been given because of the victory of the cross. And He is there to be an advocate for us and teach us to abide in the vine and produce fruit in keeping with who we are. So there's work to be done. There's work to be done. What, Lord God, what, what areas are there in my life that are like an unruly person in the camp who is saying, hey, come over here, come over here, come over here. There's gods to worship here. The Bible is saying, no, don't, you can't let that happen. You have to think about it. And the Spirit of God will be a gentle coach. You'll go, let's deal with that. Amen? Let's deal with that part because... We need to put that to death because Jesus has already paid for it. Um, but we need to get some better godly habits. You'll never be able to get the godly habits until I give you power. So the Spirit's like, I want to give you the power. To get the power, you need to hear the Word of God and you have to believe it. Get it into your heart. Don't give the devil a seat at your table. 
the table the Lord has prepared for us, Psalm 23. Just him and us. Uh, Louis Giglio <clears throat> excuse me, tells this really funny and disturbing story. I'm going to read it to you. Of a time when he took his wife out for a date for her birthday. So I'm just reading a little snippet. Uh, he's out with Shelley, his wife. I think it's Atlanta City. There we were out for this dinner. Our perfect dinner. Amazing city. Killer vibe. It's his wife's birthday. Exceptional food. Just, um, just us, though we were seated at a table of four. Midway through what was an absolutely stellar meal, a young man I hadn't met before walked by on his way out of the restaurant and did a double take. Louis Giglio, he said, shocked. Is that you? No way. I can't believe I'm seeing you here. Two months ago, I was at a conference you spoke at and God really impacted my life. Louis says, I looked up and said, oh, nice to meet you. And really cool to hear that God spoke to you in such a powerful way. Thanks for saying hello. He says, nice to meet you too. Um, uh, and then he continues to, towards the door. Um, Shelley and I picked up back with our conversation and continued to enjoy our dinner. A few minutes passed and I noticed the same young man come back into the restaurant and head straight for our table. I quickly scanned the table for sunglasses, keys and a wallet. He must have accidentally left something behind when he stopped in to say hi. Hey, the young man says, Hey, I hope this doesn't sound weird, but when I got outside and told my friend that I'd seen you in here, she said, you've got to go back and talk to him. See, I've been waiting to share something with you that God has laid on my heart ever since the conference. And crazy, here you are. I never thought I'd see you. Mind if I sit down? Without waiting for a reply, he reached for one of the empty chairs at our table. He says, oh, and Louis says, hey, I'd love to hear what God has done in your life. But can we find another time to connect? It's my wife's birthday and we're having a special night out. Let's touch base another time. The guy looks at Shelley, his wife, and curtly says, happy birthday. And then he immediately turned his attention back to me and started to sit down in the chair. What? Does anyone get what just happened, Louis says? My options weren't great at this point. That's when my palms turned sweaty. Tension filled my gut. On one hand... I could invite this stranger to my wife's special birthday dinner, just the three of us. <laughs> On the other hand, I was worried that what I was about to say to him next was going to make, this, make me sound insensitive. I think that's a great story about what happens with the devil. Don't you? How did the devil get at the table that the Lord had prepared for us? Intimately, in here, close into my heart. <coughs> Excuse me, how did he get there? Well, because he's sneaky like that. He pulls up a seat without you knowing. And how does that happen in reality? It's a thought, isn't it? It's an image. It's an offense. An idea. When Paul says 2 Corinthians 10.5, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is what he's talking about, isn't it? Don't give the devil a seat at the table. We hang on to that grudge and the devil goes, oh, thanks for this. Right, right, good stuff. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit's there going, hey, there's a bloke here that doesn't belong here. He's not going to do your heart any good. But see, if we don't take sin seriously, we don't smell his breath, amen? We don't smell the fact that this isn't right because your heart will tell you, this is not right, I don't feel right because I'm mixing the Spirit of God and the call on my life with that which I'm meant to deal with by God's grace. 
God is looking for wholehearted devotion. Amen. And it's not going to be achieved by willpower alone. There are some decisions we have to make, and they are decisions of the will. But the power that will strengthen our will is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God comes in power when we believe the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing. We need a strategy to deal with sin. And often it's done best in, in a group of people, maybe one other person, just to say, you know what, I'm trying to work through this. Um, I need some help. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. We have a, a glorious calling, don't we? To be God's people. To fellowship with him at the table. As we get ready <clears throat> to visit around our own table, the table of remembrance. Let me read to you Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, David writes, I lack nothing. That's a good thing to remember, isn't it? I lack nothing. I don't need the lure you're giving me, Satan. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. That means he's not a hard taskmaster. He wants us to be refreshed and to know, know him. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.